Um, Pastor Nichols called me when I was actually on vacation in Florida, and usually he doesn't call me directly. Um, once I saw he was on my caller ID, as like my wife says, "Yeah, let you got to pick it up." So, and um, you know, I was very humbled and grateful that he asked me to fill in once again, and you know, had sense of feeling that uh, you know the Lord is using me to be a blessing in your lives. And I'll tell you right now. Every time I come to this congregation, the fellowship is so sweet. Like, I just, it seems I can't get enough of you. So, <laughs> I thank the Lord for that. Um, so, this morning, for uh, our morning study, I'm going to be teaching from our London Baptist Confession of Faith. Okay? Um, in today's chapter, as you recall last time, I taught on um, communion of the saints in chapter 27. Um, and it was laid upon my heart um, to this morning to teach from chapter 20 of our London Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapter 20, the title of the gospel and of the extent of the grace thereof. Chapter 20 of our London Baptist Confession of Faith, of the gospel and of the extent of the grace thereof. Well, this morning, Lord willing, I would uh, we would basically go through paragraph one of our uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith. Now, <clears throat> just by historical background, I think this, especially, particularly with this chapter, I think it's important we. Uh, understand the historical background of our London Baptist Confession of Faith and particularly how it was um, how this chapter came into our confession uh, and historically as you uh, as you know the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith that we all uh, believe in and adore and love um, is based largely on the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646 as many of you know one of the stated reasons that the framers of the 1689, now just, as, just in case if no one's aware, the, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith is the Reformed Confession for uh, Presbyterians who basically believe in uh, infant baptism and, and, and stuff like that. But, you know, a lot of other their beliefs we, we, we agree with um, doctrinally, except for obviously church structure of the church, um, and also um, baptism. Now, um, one of the stated reasons that the framers of the 1689 Confession followed the Westminster so closely and employed so much of the same language is because the Baptists wanted to, employ, um, to show that they had, quote, no itch to clog religion with new words, Okay. This is in our London Baptist Confession of Faith. In other words, uh, they wanted to show their unity with other Orthodox Protestants in those areas of primary doctrinal concern. Okay? Uh, so that's why, you know, our London Baptist Confession of Faith often verbatim, basically, um, copies the Westminster. Now, however, the writers of the 1689 were not content simply to parrot the words of their Presbyterian brethren. Where necessary, the particular Baptists took exception to certain language in the Westminster Confession where they found deficiencies. They added statements for clarification where they recognized the need to address their own particular beliefs that set them apart from their Presbyterian brethren. Okay? As many of you know, that would be baptism. Who do we feel are the proper recipients of baptism? Believers. Believers. Now, there was a, another confession now, besides the Westminster, that heavily uh, influenced our particular Baptist forefathers. And that was the Savoy Declaration, which was published in 1656. Now, what is the Savoy Declaration? Well, the Savoy Declaration was the Reformed Confession for the Congregationalist. Okay? So you have the Westminster Confession of Faith for the Presbyterians, 
Now you have us, right? Reformed Baptist, the 1689. Then you have the Savoy, which is in the middle. And therefore the Congregationalists, and the only difference with Congregationalists with Presbyterian, they both believe in infant baptism, but as far as church structure, they're different. They're more in line with Baptists than they are with their Presbyterian brethren. Okay? Um, so the Savoy Declaration was the Reformed Confession for the Congregationalists. And the leading theologians who put this confession of faith together was individuals like John Owen, Thomas Goodwin, and Charles Bridges, basically. Uh, these Puritans. The Savoy Declaration also copies the Westminster verbatim as well. So if you read the Savoy, they copy the Westminster Confession verbatim. And then they also changed certain portions that they felt they needed to. Now for our particular Baptist forefathers, both the Westminster and the Savoy Declaration was used in framing what we have today in our 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Now chapter 20 of our London Baptist Confession is not rooted from the Westminster Confession. If you look at your Westminster, the, the Westminster Confession, they don't have this chapter of, of the grace and the extent uh, uh, of the gospel and the extent of the grace thereof. Because chapter 20 of our London Baptist Confession actually originated from the Savoy Declaration, the Congregationalist Confession. Now one may ask, um, if the Congregationalists copy the Westminster verbatim, then why the addition for chapter 20, right? Why do they add two confessions out of three, add this chapter? Well, Sam Waldron finds two reasons why the Savoy added chapter 20 to their confession, and I believe he's correct, and why our particular Baptist forefathers agreed to keep it in the 1689. First reason... When the Congregationalists revised the Westminster for their own confession in 1658, they noted in the preface the reason that they included a chapter 20. And it was because after chapter 19 of the law of God, which you have in the Westminster, right? They have a chapter on the law of God. And they, ha and they felt that we have added chapter 20 of the grace of the gospel it being a title, and this is quoting from the um, um, Savoy, it being a title that may not well be omitted in a confession of faith. So they felt, if you're going to have a chapter on the law of God, you should probably have a chapter on the gospel. Okay? Um, and, and it goes, they go on to say, um, in which chapter, what is dispersed and by intimation in the Westminster Assembly Confession, with some little addition, is here brought together and more fully under one head. So if you're going to speak about the law of God, you should speak about the gospel. Okay? Now, if you, if you see what they're saying, like if you're going to have that, you should have the gospel. Because if not, you, people can have a tendency to go into legalism and all this, right? Now, the second reason Waldron highlights, he says, uh, a few paragraphs before that explanation of the authors of the Savoy, Right, they write, a few things we have added for um, alleviating some erroneous opinions that have been more broadly and boldly here of late maintained by the asserters than in former times. So there's, there's, a, there's an issue that's happening during this time of the 1650s of during why the congregations felt this is another reason why we need to have this, this uh, chapter. And... They go further say they further say uh, and made some other additions and alter, al, uh, alterations in method here and there and some clearer explanations as we found occasion and so now to break that down more in layman's terms Sam Walden writes here the con the contents of the chapter indicate that the error in view depreciated the necessity of the special revelation contained in the scriptures for salvation. Okay? A general knowledge of the period permits the educated guess that the Puritan authors had already sensed the intellectual tendency which would later produce deism, 
with its emphasis on the sufficiency of human reason and natural revelation in its opposition to supernatural revelation. Okay? So, deism, basically, is a belief in the existence of, the, of a supreme being, right? Especially uh, of a creator who does not intervene in the universe. Okay? So they believe in a higher power, but he doesn't intervene. Which is contrary to what we believe as Christians. And what the Bible teaches. Uh, the term is used chiefly of an intellectual movement of the 17th century that accepted the existence of a creator of, on, the, on the basis of human reason, but rejected belief in supernatural deity uh, who interacts with humanity. And they certainly didn't believe that um, any scriptures would uh, teach of this true one and, and, and living God. Now, do you see how this would have a direct attack? This would be a direct attack against Christianity. This whole ideism, this whole philosophy is a direct attack on the Bible itself, on special revelation. And in turn, it's a direct attack on the gospel. So, with the growing evils of deism in the 17th century, the confession is in this chapter was designed in part to stand against that. Okay? However, the matters that chapter 20 addresses still of equal importance now for Christians today. It's not only important during that time historically, but it's important today because it's the gospel. Right? The necessity of the gospel contained in the scriptures. <clears throat> you know, um, so... With that being said, now we can begin our exposition of our London Baptist Confession of Faith here. Now, now without further ado, I, I do like how Greg Nichols actually laid this whole chapter out. Um, I told him a lot of his, uh, his classes are online. He doesn't even know it. And uh, I've listened to a lot of them, actually, and I've been truly blessed. I like how he lays out paragraphs and sections, how he, he d divides it very nice and... Uh, so, if I was to teach for the four paragraphs, I like how he lays it out. Paragraph 1, he entitles, The Initial Revelation of the Gospel. Paragraph 2, The Unique Mode in Which the Gospel is Revealed by Scripture. Paragraph 3, The Sovereign uh, Dissemination of the Gospel. And paragraph 4, The Effectiveness of the Gospel. Now, those are not my headings, those are, those are his. And I just want to make sure... I give credit to where credit's due here. So this morning we'll consider the initial revelation of the gospel now, as he entitles it. Paragraph 1 of our London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 20. The covenant of works being broken by sin and made unprofitable unto life, God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect and begetting in them faith, and repentance in this promise, in this promise, the gospel as to the substance of it was revealed and is therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. So firstly, uh, with two points we can consider here. <clears throat> firstly, the giving of a promise, right? Secondly, its purpose in giving this promise. So the first thing to, uh, we to notice in our confession, is that the promise of good news is given in the context and setting of sin and condemnation. See, Adam's fall is referred to in the opening sentence of our paragraph, using the terminology, the covenant of works. The London Baptist Confession states, the covenant of works being broken by sin and made unprofitable unto life. The first biblical appearance of God making or establishing a covenant occurred at creation. Okay? It occurred at creation. Um, covenantally built a unigod, uh, the creator covenantally built a universe and an environment in which mankind could live. God constituted Adam as the natural and federal head of all humanity, right? Of us all. After the Lord commands Adam to multiply and fill the earth and to subdue it. Some people call it the uh, co creation covenant, covenant of works, right? 
Genesis chapter 2. If you want to turn your Bibles there, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 reads, Then the Lord's God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, here R.C. Sproul states, God created Adam good. And in the proper relationship with him, by obeying the command to not eat the forbidden fruit, Adam could have reflected God's glory more fully and would have merited eternal life for himself and his descendants. Earl Blackburn uh, Reformed Baptist writes here, Adam was put under a probationary covenant of works in which God promised obedience would be rewarded with life and disobedience would be punished with curse and eternal death. The covenant of works is that pre-fall agreement between God and Adam in which Adam was promised blessing and life upon obedience in the terms of the covenant and cursing and death should he disobey. Now, if Adam had obeyed, he and his posterity, as they say, after him would have retained life, some type of eternal life, right? Good, they would be in a good state. But Adam's disobedience marked the entrance of death into the world, basically where, where we are now. The fall placed Adam and all of his posterity under condemnation and misery. So, Romans chapter 5, if you want to turn your Bibles there, Romans chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 12 and following, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin, but the free gift is not like the offense, for by the one man's offense, many died. For by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Now, if you would turn to your London Baptist Confession of Faith, let's consider, uh, open up to paragraph uh Chapter 6, of the fall of man. Of the fall of man. So you have here now, uh, the, in our London Baptist Confession of Age, chapter 6, particularly paragraphs 2 and 3, the fall of man. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. And we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all of the faculties and parts of soul and body. Paragraph 2. They being the root and by God's appointment standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their <clears throat> prosperity, prosperity descending from them by ordinary generations, being now conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. I mean, this is not a good place where we are at apart from Christ. Adam did not leave us anything good. And apart from Christ, there is nothing good. There's only misery. God bluntly asserts in his word that his just sentence of condemnation was imputed on every person because of the specific sin and transgression of Adam, even though a person has not committed Adam's particular sin. doesn't matter. We are guilty before God, not only because of the imputed sin of Adam, but also because of our own actual sins. You know, we're no... We, you know, people can say, oh, you know, if I was there, I wouldn't have done it. I would have not eaten from the tree. Like, yeah, okay. You know, and then to say if you had a clean slate, you would ruin your slate. Just being in this world, you will ruin your slate. You will accrue sin. So we're guilty before God. 
There's no excuse. We would, we would not do any better than Adam. And because of sin, the covenant of works is ineffective in given life. It can only bring death, as Galatians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 8 state. And therefore, as the confession says, it is unprofitable for life. It's unprofitable. The point is that after the fall, man cannot please God by works. And it's sadly, that's what you see men doing today. Men apart from Christ, they're relying on their own works, trying to please the Lord, trying to please God. It's not going to work. Is that we cannot attain life by any means. We cannot, apart from Christ, we can't. See, man, he, he is lost in sin. And if he is to be restored to communion with God, the initiative must come from God alone. If we're guilty, hell-deserving sinners, how can we bargain with God to make a truce on? We can't. It has to come from God himself. It is now in this context, in the midst of God's righteous judgment upon Adam and upon us all, we have the unexpected, uh, the unexpected occurs. And our confession is, God was pleased, looking to your confessions, God was pleased, back, oh, I'm sorry, back to chapter 20 in your confessions, it says here, God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman. So now we have, that's the context, right? And then we have, God is pleased to give forth the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman. The first announcement of good news now to sinful men comes immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve. I mean, think about that. God barely, if you read it in Genesis, God barely scolded them for what they did wrong, right? He says, hey, what have you done? What? And then, you know, they're blame shifting. Oh, the woman you gave me. And then she's like, oh, but the, the snake deceived me. All this blame shifting. And then it's not too long after that situation that we have the gospel given, the good news, a good message. Genesis chapter 3, 15 and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her seed and you, and um, between your seed and her seed. So yeah, God is directly speaking to Satan, right? And He's telling them, He's He's telling them there will be enmity now between your seed and my seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman is none other than the coming of. A righteous physical descendant. A righteous descendant who will deliver his people from the fall of Adam. And from the dominion of sin and condemnation. And the power of Satan. And that is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this promise of the righteous seed was not only declared to Adam now. But it was also progressively unfolded throughout the Old Testament now. Um... For example, to Abraham, this, this promised seed, this coming seed, was declared to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, or in your seed. Okay? Um, now, Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, has something to say about this. Um, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes to the Galatians, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed. And then here he says, Paul says, who is Christ? So, now Abraham is hearing about this seed. In him, in the seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Here Paul makes it plain that this seed is Christ. Christ who is from the lineage of Abraham made a way by which all of Abraham's children, those according to faith, would develop a relationship with God the Father. Christ's work makes it possible for God to be our God and Father according to the promise of Genesis chapter 17. Christ is indeed a blessing to all the nations, to all the nations who put their trust in him. Christ blesses them. Nations, we're talking. He blesses a multitude. 
Now, not only through Abraham, but also you can fast forward to David, King David, um, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to turn your Bibles there, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Picking up in verse 12. He says here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, some people, like the Jews, <clears throat> who want to deny Christ as Messiah, they'll say, oh, this is speaking of King Solomon. This is speaking of King Solomon. But if you understand certain phrases here, it talks about establishing the throne of his kingdom forever. And, I mean, King Solomon, he had a great kingdom, right? I mean, Israel was in great prosperity under him and all, but... That kingdom fell. The temple was destroyed, was it not? You know, so it's not the, his throne, his kingdom forever. It's not talking of King Solomon. Also, turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 89. Look at Psalms chapter And uh, here I would, I will pick up on verses and skip to other ones just to get the point here. But um, in picking up in verses three and four, he writes here: "I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever, and build up your throne to all generations." Now, in verse twenty-nine. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. See, we're speaking of an eternal kingdom here, an eternal throne that cannot be fulfilled in, in the days of King Solomon. It can only be fulfilled in Christ. And so here we speak of this seed. This seed is gonna, this promised seed is gonna have a kingdom forever. In Abraham, he's going to bless the nations. Under David, he's going to have a kingdom forever. Psalm 132, verse 11. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set up your throne. Um, sorry, I will set up upon your throne the fruit of your body. And that was speaking basically of the physical descendant of David. That's why you know, it was important that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Because it was promised in Scripture. And that he will have an eternal throne. Now, that's just a few there. But then you also got to consider the prophets now. Throughout the prophets, it's just... To, you know, to cut this Sunday uh, study short, I had to take some out here. But, you know, I think, uh, for example, Jeremiah chapter 23. If you want to turn your Bibles there, Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, um, verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6 reads, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteousness. So now this is after Solomon now here. This is when we're, we're still speaking now of a coming seed. And here he uses the words, a branch of righteousness. And it's tied to 
David's lineage here. One of David's descendants. And they shall call him the Lord our righteousness or Yahweh our righteousness. Now that can't be attributed to any other Israelite throughout Israel's history. It can't be. No one can deserves or has earned that title other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter 33, we're still in Jeremiah, turn to chapter uh, 33. Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. <clears throat> uh, uh, verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. You see, so now you see here, again, this is what we see in the Gospels. When we read of, of the accounts of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, I mean, did he not execute righteousness and justice in the earth? I mean, he called out hypocrites from the Pharisees, right? He called out, he pointed to the sins of people's hearts. Those who even did, didn't even say anything, they just had their thoughts within them, the Lord spoke to them. I mean, the Lord, what did he do? I mean, he, he, he casted out the tax collector, um, the, 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 the people who were selling in the, the temple, basically, for commerce and all that. And he says, you know, he's whipping them out. He says, don't you know that my house should be a house of prayer? I mean, the Lord was righteous. He had righteous indignation against all the hypocrisy and wickedness and sin that was going on in the, in, during that time. Um, it isn't for no reason that Paul refers to the Old Testament covenants as the covenants of promise. See, so this promise of a coming seed basically is rooted in all the covenants from the, uh, uh, the covenant of works, or the, the Adamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, right, the Davidic covenant, all of these covenants, they all make reference to the promise of a coming seed. And it was that seed, that promise of that individual who was coming, ties all these covenants together. Which, in Ephesians chapter 2.12, Paul makes this reference of the covenants of promise. Covenants, plural, of promise, singular. Of this one promise. And it was that promise that the people of, of Israel in the Old Testament were looking to, were looking to. Uh, the promise of the good news of this seed is what tied all the biblical covenants together and was the basis for the covenant of grace. So, now turn your Bibles to, um, your confessions to chapter 7 of, uh, of your uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapter 7. You go chapter 7. And I would, it would be in, in paragraph 3. I read a portion of that paragraph. But it says here in uh, chapter 7, paragraph 3 of, the, of God's covenants. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all to Adam and the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. And afterwards, by farther steps, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. So, we see here that the covenant of grace was in the form of a promise in the Old Testament. And it was looking to the promise of this coming seed. And now, there was nothing you can do but to put your hope and anticipate of this coming seed. This is why the New Testament... In the New Testament, there was such a high expectation for the, the coming of the Messiah through the line of David because of this constant proclamation, this declaration of the coming seed. There was high expectations for the Messiah to be coming. By which many cried out, Son of David, Son of David, when they saw the Messiah. They cried out, Son of David, because they knew 
We know from the scriptures and from our forefathers that there is a coming seed, a promised seed, and he's coming through the line of David. Um, and this is also why, when I understood this, um, you know, one of the passages, there's only two th areas in the Bible that I had a hard time reading. One is the book of Leviticus, right? That's a hard book to read. I mean, and I, every year I'm like, all right, all right, we're going to do it. We're going to read the book of Leviticus. We're going to go through it. And then after like chapter 7 or 8 with all of these sacrifices, I'm like, Lord, forgive me. I'm going to go to the book of Numbers. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, right? I mean, hey, but I will say I have read the whole book of Leviticus by God's grace. I mean, I did it, right? And I wasn't rich, but it was hard. But then the other passages that were portions of the scripture that were hard to read was the genealogies, Right? I mean, when, when we do family worship and we come to those sections, yeah, first, I'm like, I'm going to do it. For family worship, we're going to read the genealogies. And in the Old Testament, I mean, chapters and chapters of son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, you go on and on. And, like, my, my kids, when we get to the portion, like, it got to the point of, like, oh, man, like, we're going to hear a lot of names. And then, you know, also in the Gospels, like, you know, Gospel of Matthew and so in Luke, when you read, a lot of people tend to skip all of the genealogies, right? But it wasn't until I understood this concept of the promise of the coming seed, who first was going to be through Abraham, remember, and in your seed the nations will be blessed. So that's a physical descendant, right, that we're hearing. Then we also hear through the line of David. And then people look, oh, was it King Solomon? No, it wasn't. Oh, who's this next? And then there, there's this anticipation of this coming seed. Well, now you made two promises that it's going to be through the seed of Abraham and through the line of David from the tribe of Judah. And the only way to have that actually comfortably laid out to the people of God to have faith in it is to have a genealogy. It really is. So when I understood that, I was like, I understand now why these genealogies are very important in Scripture. You know, I had a hard time. Why? Why do they keep doing this? You know, but that's why. Because they had to show forth that Christ indeed fulfilled prophecy of Scripture from being Abraham's seed through David's line through, from the tribe of Judah. Okay? So, I thought that was very helpful to understand why genealogies are so important to the people of God in the Scripture. Why they went through, even during the... Uh, um, you know, when, when Assyria came and took over Israel and destroyed their kingdom, they had to make sure they kept the genealogies intact. Um, so, the good news is of, um, excuse me, the good news of the promise started with Eve and it funneled all the way through. Now, just a side note, why it's important for this whole the promise seed, the physical lineage of Abraham and David, there was a couple things that came to mind. Um, one of the things is I thought, you ever you remember the uh, passage in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 25, yeah, where it talks about where a man is fighting another man. Now, we're speaking of Israelites now, the context, right? Two men are fighting, two Israelites are fighting. One of them is kind of beating the snot out of the other one, where the wife, it says the wife comes and she jumps in and tries to help and talks about if she basically grabs his privates, basically, to hurt him, right? Because she's trying to protect her husband, right? I mean, he's getting beat up. i got to jump in here, right? And if she is to harm his privates, basically, one of the things that you hear is that her hand is supposed to be cut off, to be cut off. And I wondered, why so severe? Like, she's only helping her husband. But it, I, I started thinking... In light of this, could it have been that if you're doing that, you're basically hindering the physical lineage of the Messiah to come through, basically, right? I mean, he's coming through the physical birth of the line of Abraham and David. Also, I think the sin of Onan is another reason why, too. I mean, Onan, you know, he basically married his brother's wife who died, and he was supposed to give her children, and he end up didn't, if you know the case of the sin of Onan. I wondered also, again, this is just me, I'm wondering if, yes, that was sin and wicked, but could it have been also that if him doing that, he's hindering 
process of the, the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ's lineage coming through by doing what he did. And I just wonder, was that part of the case there, what it's kind That's just a thought. That's my own personal, you know, thoughts, but take it with a grain of salt. Um, now also, this is why Satan's, now there's another thing, this is why um, Satan's tactic of thwarting God's plans for this promised seed often was accompanied by trying to kill the children of Israel, right? I mean, think about it. Uh, Pharaoh, what happened with Pharaoh? Pharaoh's eating. He wanted to kill all the Hebrew boys, right? And for him, he's like, oh, they're getting too powerful. We need to, you know, shrink them down, kill all the boys. Now, you know, the enemy, Satan, was behind that. I think he's trying to stop the promised seed from coming. Also, King Herod, same thing, right? What did he do? He wanted to keep his kingdom. When he heard that, oh, you know, it's the time for the Messiah to come, he's probably this age, kill all of the Hebrew boys, what, two years, years and old, right? Two years old and younger, he wanted to kill them. You know, so it, as you see, you see through history this constant attack of trying to stop the promised seed from coming. The enemy tried in many ways. Despite the schemes of the evil men, of evil men and of Satan, Christ, the promised seed, was born. He was born. And God kept his promise. Regardless, the whole world tried to stop him. Christ was born. Now, this, this promise of the coming seed, we now see what was his purpose, right? Look into your London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 20. And um, the rest of the paragraph, which reads, it says the purpose, it was the means, now the gospel was the means of calling the elect and begetting in them faith and repentance. In this promise, the gospel, as to the substance of it, was revealed and is therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. Now this promise was all that was necessary for the salvation of souls, both in the Old and New Testament. This promise seed. It was effective then, and it is still effective now, for the salvation of sinners. It's not by circumcision. It's not by, you know, converting to Judaism and all that. It's by faith. The gospel is not a dead message to dead sinners, but it is a message with power to dead sinners. The gospel is a message that gives life to dead sinners. And you know, we hear, now this whole phrase, the power of the gospel. I mean, if you turn your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1, or I can read it for you, it states here that, for I am not, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Here John Gill writes here, It is the power of God organically or instrumentally, as it is a means made use of by God in quickening dead sinners, enlightening blind eyes, unstopping deaf ears, softening hard hearts, and making of enemies friends. To which add, the manner in which all this is done, suddenly, secretly, effectually, by love. The promise, see, the coming promise of Christ, that message is what God uses to save sinners, to quicken dead sinners. The gospel which is made up by of words, just words, right? Telling of the good news of Jesus Christ, God uses to save sinners. To save sinners. The gospel, as our confession, it speaks about giving, uh, begetting in them faith. You see that in our confession, right? Well, in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, we read, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't say that basically faith comes by you. Faith is, you have to, you have to muster up faith. No, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Hearing of the promise of the coming, coming Messiah. Hearing of Christ, now that He has come for us, and that He is now resurrected and sits at the right hand of the Father. Hearing that message 
comes faith. God grants faith to his people, to his elect. You know, for example, Philippians has not only been granted for you to not only to uh, suffer, but to believe. Like it's granted you, the Lord gives you the ability to believe. Faith is a gift of God. The preaching of the gospel is the means God makes use of to convey faith into the hearts of his people. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, when he says, and this is not of yourselves, the closest antecedent here is the word faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this faith, is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And you see also, um, by the gospel, sinners are born again, as our confession states here. Uh, grants repentance and all that, and gives them uh, a life, right? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, having been born again, how? Not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, what? Through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Now, Stephen Hoffman here writes here that it is only by the means of this revelation that sinners will be saved. It's by this message. It is to call men to repentance and faith, not mere acknowledgement that there was a seed of the woman who would crush Satan's head. Now that's, you know, Bob, people, that, that, that speaks to like kind of our day now, right? People, oh, I believe in God. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I believe Jesus was a real person. You know, they figure that mental assent is enough. And that's how I kind of was, I grew up. Like, I didn't deny God existed. I didn't deny that, you know, there's something unique about Jesus. But in my, you know, my sinfulness, I just thought, oh, I, I, yeah, yep, I assent to that. And I figured, therefore, I'm good, right? I should be okay. That's how probably a lot of us were before we were saved. Until when you actually were uh, pursued by God in the preaching of the gospel, being convicted of your sins, and seeing how you are, are accountable before God, and the only way to rid yourself of a condemnation and, and judgment is to cast yourselves upon the Lord Jesus Christ. More than just, yeah, he's a person. It's no, he's my Savior. He's my Savior. Um, but he says here, um, it, you know, but trust in that seed that he alone would be able to deliver his people from the bondage of sin and Satan. So trusting in Christ, that you will actually be recipients of the blessings of Christ. You know, back in the promise to Abraham that in your seed the nations will be blessed. The only way you're going to have the Lord's blessing is putting your faith and trust in Christ. That's the only way that that promise will be fulfilled in your life. Um, this was the same power extended for the Old Testament saints. Because some people say, oh, the Old Testament saints, they were saved by works. You know how dispensationalism tries to teach. They were saved by works. They were saved. No. They were saved by the same way, faith. You see, John chapter 8, verse 50, uh, 56, Jesus writes, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham saw my day. What happened when Abraham heard about this coming seed and everything that he was to be, Abraham put faith in that promise of the, the, the Savior. Deuteronomy 18, verse uh, 15, Moses says, uh, the, Moses, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now you figured... At this time, Moses performed many mighty works before the people of Israel. Did he not? I mean, he parted the Red Sea. He, you know, manna came down and all these things. He struck a rock. Water came. I mean, like, I mean, if we saw that stuff today, like, this guy's it. Like, forget about it, right? Like, this is crazy. But Moses here, you figured if anyone's worth listening to, it would be Moses, right? But here Moses is telling Israel of one mightier than him. That is to be more worthy to be heeded and, and heard and listened to. Moses is pointing here to the promised seed, to Christ. Psalm 101, David says, The Lord says of my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord says to my Lord, David's saying these words. See, David sees of this coming promised seed as the Lord, or in the Hebrew, Yahweh. The Lord says to Yahweh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So even David had this view where he put faith in the promised seed of Christ. Matthew chapter 22, verse 45, Jesus says, If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? See, so Jesus is referring right to this passage I just read. If David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? Jesus is saying, the point is, I'm the son of God. I am God in the flesh here to save sinners. And so David had a high view and faith in the anticipation of the coming promise. Matthew uh, 13, verse 17. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see. Jesus speaking to the disciples. They desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear. And they did not hear it. See, so Jesus is referring to all of the Old Testament prophets. They were looking forward to the coming Messiah. They were casting their hope and faith in the coming Messiah, the promised seed of the woman. Hebrews 11 verse 13. All these died in faith. They didn't die in works and keeping the law of Moses for their rest and their hope and salvation. No, they died in faith without receiving the promises, meaning they didn't get to see the Messiah. But yet they died in faith, but haven't seen them and haven't welcomed them from a distance. So the God's true people in the Old Testament, they had a faith and hope in the promise of the seed, Christ. To the Old Testament saints, not all things were made clear to them. But one thing was abundantly clear. They knew that salvation would only come from God through the work of this promised seed. By His grace, and it was this, they were to cast their trust alone. We're to put our hope in this promised seed, the seed of the woman, Christ who crushed the head of the serpent. The only way for sin is to be saved from Adam to Moses, from Moses to David, from David, all the way to John the Baptist, from John the Baptist to the very last elect sinner is saved on earth before the end of human history. The only way for people to be saved is by faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. The only way any sinner has ever been saved and will ever be saved is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, I look forward to that day when he comes back on that great and final day where we can say, come Lord Jesus, come. And he can do away with all of sin and, and just the destruction we see in this world where the, our hearts would, with unsinning hearts, we would worship and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.